Evening. My name is Mark Orphan. I'm the missions pastor here at Timberline. And I wanted to let you know it's that time of year, if you've been around Timberline for some time, that we uh, look to our uh, mission celebration of some type. Traditionally, our mission celebration has been a weekend, which culminates on a Sunday night. But this year, it's a full week. And so I wanted to take a couple minutes to explain that to you because it begins and ends on a Wednesday night. Two weeks from tonight, March 5th, uh, is the launch of our missions week with the theme Passport Through Partnerships. There's something happening every night of the week. Uh, for seven nights, but that March 5th is the same format. We want you to come, love for you to be here. You'll have an opportunity to hear from some of our uh, missionaries who are actually being sent out full-time from Timberline Church, and we're going to Skype in another one who has who was sent out over a year ago and is serving faithfully in the country of Guatemala, and so really want you to be here and to be part of that. Uh, you can take a flyer on your way out. Karen, can you wave to us? Karen Bauer has a number of the flyers here that explain the activities of the entire week. There's something happening every night of the week. But that last night, which is Wednesday night, March 12th, is our mission celebration event. And the Wednesday night format will be different on that night, including the kids' programming. So what will happen, the, the event is from 6 to 8 o'clock. And so at 6 o'clock, if you have kids, uh, you will check them in like you ordinarily would. Uh, And then there's programming that goes all the way through 8 o'clock. They'll begin with a a missions program that's planned for them in room 214. And then at 645, they'll be taken to their regular uh, Wednesday night programming. But the theme throughout the night for them will be uh, missions. And you won't want to miss it. They're going to have a great time. As adults, we'll have our own program in the main auditorium, but also different cultural experiences all around the building. So we really, really want you to be here. It is a ticketed event. Now, it's not cost prohibitive. It's $2. Uh, And so you need to have tickets, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to give you a couple weeks in advance or a few weeks in advance to anticipate that. You can buy tickets tonight from Karen and also let her know how many children uh, you will have coming that night. And so we encourage you to do that. Again, the flyer has all the information on it. Uh, but please join us uh, March 5th and March 12th on Wednesday nights for our Mission Celebration Week. Thanks, Brent. Appreciate it. Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, hey, can I ask our ushers to come forward? Um, some of you are already forward. You were way ahead of me. This is our weekly tithes and offering. Tim Bryan, thank you for being faithful and in, in, uh, giving in pretty significant ways. Um, go ahead and pass those. We are almost uh, kind of rounding out our series on the, the parables of Jesus, looking at this idea of how do we get past the, uh, the watchful dragons. We've been leveraging this phrase by, by C.S. Lewis, this idea of each one of us has a, a watchful dragon. Now, now, Dragon's Guard, if you know your, your fairy tales, Dragon's Guard treasure. And uh, Christ would say the greatest treasure is our heart. Uh, that's what we talked about week one, the idea of our heart being open. But the reality is because of hurts in our life, because of experiences, because of just internal sinfulness, we kind of have like things guarding our hearts. We have things that would say, I don't, I don't want God to get through. And that's that picture of a dragon. I have natural defenses that when, I, when, when truth comes to me, I, I'm, 
oftentimes it, it costs me to accept truth. truth. Truth stings. It hurts. And so I place these things as sort of barriers in my life. And, and Jesus, who is maybe the shrewdest person of all time, I would suggest, is subversive. Um, he doesn't just tell us things in a straightforward way. He does that. But then he kind of says, okay, if I can't get to you that way, let me try story. And so he, he teaches in story form more than any other way, or what we call parables. And next week we're going to be wrapping up our parable series. Pastor Dick Foth will be here with us. He's going to be teaching on the parable of the prodigal son, um, which, which comes in Luke chapter 15. Tonight we're looking at Luke 16. So we're kind of doing it backwards, but this is the parable that, that comes right on the heels of what we're talking about next week. The parable of the prodigal son. And there is some connection there. But this is, I would suggest, maybe like one of the most difficult parables. I was, I was talking to someone earlier this week and saying, I kind of wish I wouldn't have picked this one. Because it's just, it's kind of weird. It's, it's a tough one to kind of get your mind around. And, and people for, for years have debated, what is Jesus saying in this parable of the, the unjust manager or the shrewd Steward. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16. And let me just encourage you, please bring your Bibles with you guys. One of the best ways that you can uh, be guaranteed to not feel incompetent to pick up the Bible during the week is that you kind of get used to flipping around and used to where things are. It's one of the best practices. So I know some of you guys have it on your phones or iPads and that sort of thing, and that's great too. But try to bring that with you. Luke chapter 16. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. This, again, there's not a lot of narrative context. It falls right on the heels of Jesus speaking to the different groups around him. He's got, he's got the ones who, who are kind of the religious leaders, are, are highly critical for the most part. He has some who are kind of hanging back, who, who are interested in what he's saying, but not really sure they want to give up their lifestyle. And in that context, he tells the stories of the lost coin, the lost um, sheep, the lost son. And then, Luke 16, he says this, Jesus told his disciples, Luke tells us, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. Because you cannot be manager anymore. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it out for 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. And in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then Jesus said, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, for 15 chapters, Luke has been recording for us 
Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, what it looks like. It's this upside-down kingdom. It's this idea of serving and loving, and he came to die, and, and, and talking about what the heart looks like. But it's, it's very obvious that in this chapter, Jesus, his, his point is that as a follower of Jesus, you should lie, steal, cheat, and be deceptive. Right? Especially if you're, I'm joking. He did not really say it. Especially if you're your boss. Right? This seems so backwards. It seems like he just held up a guy who, who's a rat a crook, and he goes, how come you guys can't be more like this guy? And they kind of scratch their heads like, what? it's kind of the opposite of what you've been telling us. Are you like changing your mind right now? Or what's going on? Well, let me kind of explain the story. Think for a second. Think about some of the characters involved. We have the master. We have what we'll call the steward. And then we have, though they're kind of off off the main page, but they're still important for this, is the community. Which would also be made up of the debtors, the ones who, who, who are tenants of the Master. So now, anytime you read a parable of Jesus, anytime there are two major, this is, this is the case all the way through his 40s or some parables, anytime you've got two kind of major players in it, and one's a bad guy, one's kind of the ignoble, the jerk. The other guy's always, he's the noble one. He's the upright one. He's the just person. And so it's not hard to tell who that is. The steward is the thief. He's the liar. He's the crooked one. You know, the manager is the guy who is guilty as charged. Now, the master, we don't get any hint of any sort of uh, indiscretion. He seems to be a man who is revered for his reverent, or his, uh, his generosity, we see earlier in there. And he's, he's become rich by renting out farmland. He's a farmer. He's not a banker. He's a farmer. And his tenants pay him in the form of agricultural produce. And so the steward is his estate manager. He, he, he's his bookkeeper. He's got all the, all the data, all the records. And a report of, of uh, financial misconduct reaches the ears of the master. And so here's kind of the series of events. The master finds out. He calls in the steward privately, and he, he accuses him. He tells him, turn in your books. You're done. You're fired. You're not working for me anymore. And um, these are all the books that are given by the owner to the steward with all the details, all the information, everything he's supposed to be taking care of. Now, Jesus' listeners, typically because this is a Middle Eastern culture, Jesus' listeners would have expected a certain response from the steward. They would expect a sort of a, um, a defense in some way or another. It's very unlikely in Middle Eastern culture that a master would fire someone on the spot who works for him, especially if he's a manager, especially if he's sort of in a higher position. There's this sort of negotiation that would go on back and forth. And the steward could have responded, you know, beloved master, please, I've served you for your, my father served your father, my grandfather served your grandfather. Don't, don't throw away three generations of faithful service over just something that's misunderstood. He could have said, look, it's not my fault. Things are out of my control. I, you've got so much property. I need more people to work under me. He could have said, there are thieves out there. There are people who are making me. He could have done a number of things. But quite surprisingly, he doesn't do any of this common negotiation that happens in the Middle East. 
he does the universal sign of guilt. He just, he just goes, he just walks away. Because silence typically means, I got nothing to say, or I know I can't manipulate you in any way. And so silence is a confession of guilt. Now later, the steward says when he's alone, he starts going, okay, what do I do? I got to figure something out here. And so in verse 3, he's, this, is, this is where he starts thinking, and he says, okay, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Now suddenly, right before verse 4, an idea comes to him. And he says, I know what I'll do. So that when I do get fired, because I'm getting fired, there's no way around that. When I do get fired, I will be welcomed into people's houses. So we see his goal. Now that's just the language of a steward works in your house, meaning I'll get another job. Okay? His goal is to get another job when this one ends. Okay? So as he's thinking about it, he goes, okay, what do I do here? What's the data? What does he have to work with? Because he's kind of assessing like the lay of the land. Okay, how do I make this work for me? And so he thinks this. Well, um, I was dismissed in private. No one else was in the room. No one knows that I was fired. Secondly, uh, I'm still holding the account books. Now, he told me to go get the account books. So I've got to get them back there pretty quickly. So I've got a small window. And no one knows that I'm not still empowered to make financial decisions for this this man that I've been working for, the master. So he does have one ace that he can play. He's got one card up his sleeve, he thinks. And so here's, here, here's his basic plan, and here's how it works. Under the guise of, I'm still employed by the master, um, he calls the tenants. He would have sent a servant, because remember, he calls them. To, he doesn't go out to them. He says, come meet with me. Now, it's not harvest time, so the master wouldn't be calling to collect his payment. So the tenants are thinking, this has got to be like a big deal. Something big is going on. The steward sends a servant out to get him. The servants don't know, so it looks very official. The servants go out, they get him, they come in. Now he meets with them one by one. And in this meeting, he conducts these private interviews. And notice each interview is tailored specifically to that person. How much does he think he can bend them? How much can he get out of them? So he's assessing even who they are. Will they go down this much or will they be okay with it? At what point can I get them to uh, partner with me on this? How easily bought are they? He's assessing all of these points. See, if he'd done a group meeting, he's got all the tenants. He's got like 20 tenants in there. It could get out of control, right? He could lose control fast. Like, what are you talking about? Are you sure he said you could do this? I've never heard of this before. If one-on-one, they might think, maybe it's just me. Maybe the master really likes me. So he's very, very shrewd and wise in how he is conducting these private interviews. Finally, he does something else very unique. He, he has each tenant, after he kind of figures out a price with them, he goes, okay, we'll cut it. I'll cut it in half, 50% off today, your debt. He says, here are the books. Go here. Here's the pen. You do it. Because he wants it to be in their handwriting. If it's in their handwriting... They're equally responsible. In fact, maybe even more. And so he makes the tenants partners in the embezzlement. They are now equally responsible and equally guilty if anything comes out. So in the future, these tenants could never go to the master with any sort of an accusation. Hey, you know, your, your steward, he was doing this. or you know, he, Because they're guilty by association. They've signed on the dotted line. They've been a part of it. 
Now, you might think to yourself, okay, wait a minute. What, what, why wouldn't, I mean, the, the master's going to find out eventually that his books are cooked and something's wrong, something's been changed. It, this is too drastic. So when he finds out, aren't they worried like they're renting land? What if, what if he takes their land away? What if he kicks them off and says, you're not going to work for me anymore. You were, you were a part of this sort of thing. Um, here's, here's sort of the big piece of this. Here's why this works in this culture. Here's why this guy was such a genius. He got, it wouldn't necessarily work in our culture, but it works here so well. Traditional Middle Eastern culture is, is a part of what's called uh, honor-shame culture. An honor-shame culture. We have, you know, cultures like uh, certain Asian cultures today are still highly influenced by an honor-shame culture, which is to say the way in which you're perceived publicly is a huge deal. That's, your personal honor comes from how your public perception is. So even if there's private indiscretions, as long as publicly it looks a certain way, you have your honor. Even if everyone knows it privately, as long as it's not said publicly in some way. And so um, personal honor is preserved by that um, perceived um, public kind of communal view. That's, that's where community comes into play there. So publicly, these debtors, these guys who have taken kind of a bribe, they're uh, lining their pockets with a little bit of publicly, they can say, man, I, I thought these debt reductions were like a part of, I, I thought you made them. Had I known that you were not a part of this, I never would have entered into conversation with this steward. I never would have. Now, publicly, they can say that. And privately, the debtor can still accept a little deal that will enrich him and possibly even the steward. You know, the part that he cuts, what did they cut that 50%? Possibly. So he can still accept that privately. Remember, all these conversations were in private. There's no witnesses. So who can even prove what was said? And it's done quickly because, remember, he's been commanded to go get the books. He's got a short period of time. And so that's the reason for it being done in haste. And the reductions were enormous. Just to give you an idea, the very first reduction of the olive oil, uh, the NIV kind of gives the equivalent of about 900 gallons of olive oil. And he, he, he cuts it in half. He said, you no longer owe that for your rent. Now you owe 450 now, to give you an idea of what he gave back to me, 450, which is what he took off, that would be a, a farmer's annual income in about a year and a half. So in about a year and a half's worth of his annual income, he goes, forget that debt. I mean, can you imagine that? This is, this is a huge reduction that he's making here for these tenants. And so each debtor makes the suggested changes in the log books in the uh, rental agreement, and then he returns to his village with, with the public good news. Okay? So he goes back to his family, to his friends, and as the news gets out of what just happened, what this owner did, I mean, celebration starts. This is, this is like a financial windfall for the whole community. Okay? This, is, this is like winning the lotto. The guy shows up and he says, you, you're not going to believe what just happened. The most generous man who has ever rented land in all of Judea just cut what I owe in half. And so this party breaks out, this huge celebration, and even the steward. And the steward, he, he arranged it for me. This guy set up the whole situation. It's, you know, so the master and the steward are now heroes in the village and in the community. So what about the master's response? 
because we're kind of puzzled by why does he, why does he do this? Well, we're not so puzzled if we understand a honor shame culture. There, there are two responses the master can have. The first response would be that legally he can go to the village. He can say, this steward, he was not acting on my behalf. He did not have legal authority to cut what you owe me to, to reduce the debt in any way. And this is, this is not acceptable. Price paid in full. You have to pay it all. It's not 450. It's 900 gallons. That's, that's what you owe me. He could also take the uh, steward and put him in prison because he's basically stolen money from him, which, which puts you into slavery prison. But think about that. He does that. All of a sudden, there's a huge party that's going on in honor of whom? The rich guy. All of a sudden, this huge celebration, and then he comes down and says, no, forget it, never mind, he wasn't acting for... All of a sudden, they, it turns into a gripe session. Well, this isn't fair. This, I'm, being, I'm not being treated right. I was told... All of a sudden, everything's changed. Or, um, number two, the master could remain quiet. He could pay the price. He could absorb the, the debt that he lost through the steward's deception. And he could continue to enjoy his reputation as the most generous landowner ever to live in Judea and rent out. That's why the steward wins. Because he knows he is generous. He's betting on that. He's going all out. And he's, he's acting within this shame-honor culture, and he's going, I don't think he'll do it. I, I'm gonna, I mean, if he calls my bluff, I'm done. So it's a daring act, but it's, it's so smart, because no one can get him unless the guy from the top goes, no way, you're out. But it's at great cost, culturally, to him. This is why he is so shrewd. Now, he's still fired, right? He's lost his job, but he's set up. Because he's got a job waiting for him when he's done. See, eventually the community is going to find out everything that went on. Eventually it's going to get out. It's going to be known. Now, they won't trust the steward, but they're going to be pretty impressed. This guy's intelligent. He's daring. He's witty. Um, and they will employ him for a couple reasons. One is they kind of have, he has dirt on a couple of them, right? They were a part of the embezzlement. And, and secondly, it's the idea of, um, man, this guy's like bad. Think what he could do if he were against us. And so, you know, you tend to, you tend to want to keep people close to you who are potential dangers for you. You know the old phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, right? Abraham Lincoln was famously known that he wanted to have the smartest of his enemies working for him rather than his opponents. Now, also because he said, I could keep an eye on them too, because I don't trust them. <laughs> but he said, I will employ them, because they've got good, sharp minds. They're shrewd workers. I want them working for me. Yes, I'll have to watch them a lot more closely, but I'd rather have that person working for me than for my opponent. And so what we see here is... Um, this is, this is one of these unique scenarios. Have you ever, have you ever seen a TV show where, uh, you know, the protagonist, the guy who's kind of like the main guy or the, or the main girl in it, you'll, you know, they're, they're sort of the hero, I mean, they're the main person anyway, but they're kind of like sketchy. You know, they're, they're, there might be some redeeming qualities, but mostly, like, they're just kind of rotten. 
You know what I mean? Like they do bad things. My wife and I are watching this series where it's this kind of political series thing. And the main guy, I mean, he's a politician and he's crooked. I mean, the dude's bad. And you're kind of like learning about how bad he is as it goes. And you're just like, oh, Oh, man, he's bad. And there's some, you know, qualities. You see a little bit of insight into what they're like in his family. So, you, like, you kind of like them. But overall, they're just a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I mean, they're bad, right? But do you know why you, you end up kind of rooting for them? You kind of don't want them to get caught? It's because they're shrewd. Because they're good at what they do. And even though they're doing bad things, the fact that they're good makes you go, man, that's, that's a quality. That's something, isn't that? I mean, look at what they're doing. There's intelligence there. There's foresight. There's the ability to assess what's going on around them. I mean, they have the amazing ability. You still think they're a creep, and you're like, yeah, they're probably going to burn. You know what I mean? But it's like, man, I respect something about what they're doing. And it kind of draws, draws you in. And see, a lot of people are, are bothered by the fact that why would Jesus tell a story about this creep? about this jerk, about this dishonest guy, just rotten, and then say to all his followers, uh, that's the strategy for how I want you to live life. You know, and you go, what? what's, what's that about? Why would you point that out? Verse 8, we read this. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then right after, end of verse 8, he says, for the people, and this is Jesus' is now... Now he's turning to comment. He's told the story. Okay, he's given sort of the parable, this you know, kind of political story. And then he says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind, that means people of this world, than are people of light. So what is Jesus trying to teach here? So using, using a parable, here's the question. What dragon is Jesus trying to get past? What is, the, what is it that Jesus is trying to get around that is somehow lodged and rooted in the minds of his followers that if he just says, it's not like this, it won't work, I need to tell them a story to kind of shock them so much that they stop and really think about this. And I'd suggest that he's trying to root out a dangerous misconception that was around then, and it's still very alive and well today. And here's what it is. Being a Christian is fundamentally about being nice. That's it. That's the thing Jesus is trying to stomp up. That's the seed growing in the mind of his followers, growing in the mind of many of us. We were taught that maybe in different, by, by family, maybe in a church, that being a Christian is fundamentally about being N-I-C-E, about being nice. Uh, Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he starts out by, by, by talking about his own history uh, of how he wrestled with the idea of who Jesus is. And he said, you know, I grew up with Jesus of like kind of the felt board Jesus in Sunday school where he had you know, pictures of who he was and what he did. And, and as he grew, he went to you know, Bible college and then he went to uh, university. And it's like it, each one of these kind of you know, pictures kind of gave him a different, a different view of Jesus and you know, very different views. And he talks in that about, he said, he came across a book written by Charles Dickens. It, it was a book that Dickens wrote when he was much older. And Dickens wrote it for his children and grandchildren as a way to sort of like sum up, this is who Jesus is. 
Dickens wanted his kids to know kind of how, how he viewed Jesus. And Yancey says, as I read this book, you know, by Charles Dickens, he said, what emerged was a sweet Victorian nanny who tapped little children, boys and girls, on the head and said, be nice to your mommy and daddy. You know, that was sort of, that was sort of it. That came, and he said, there were no sharp edges to Jesus. There were no rough edges. There, were, there was nothing that would offend, nothing that would bother, nothing that would, you know, make you say, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. Everything was this very um, kind of reassuring picture. He said, a sort of a Mr. Rogers before the age of television. And he goes on to say, I love this statement, he says, you know, but after, after, I've, after I've read the Gospels, Yancey said, after I've like, just honestly looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, the one we're looking at now, and John, say, and I see this character of Jesus of Nazareth, um, and I start thinking to myself, um, how would telling people to be nice get a man crucified? He said, what kind of government would, would assassinate and kill Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo? He goes, something's got to be wrong here. Maybe Jesus isn't fundamentally nice. Maybe he's something very different than that. Because, see, Jesus is not fundamentally nice. You know what Jesus was? He was subversive. Jesus was shrewd. I mean, think about this. He refused to answer questions when he knew that the questioner didn't really have or want the truth in any sort of way. He told people what their true motives were when they were just bent towards selfishness and pride. He made a whip, and he drove the self-seeking materialists out of the temple courts. He told respected religious leaders that they were, quote, a brood of snakes and sons of the devil. He scandalized the self-righteous. But you know what? He also gave righteousness to the scandalized. He met and talked alone with women of less than questionable character. And he gave them dignity in a way that no one else ever had before. He touched and healed people like lepers who had known isolation and only seen disgust in people's eyes who passed them on the street. Jesus was good, but he wasn't safe as C.S. Lewis liked to say, or as he likened him to the lion in Narnia. He's not a tame lion. He's good, but he's not safe. Or we could say he's good, but he's not nice. And here's my question. If Jesus was not fundamentally nice, here's a personal question, as his apprentices or his disciples, should that be our fundamental characteristic? Nice. See, I'd suggest a very different attribute. Wise. You read the Bible, you go back to the ancient Hebrew texts, books like Proverbs. And the Hebrew texts tell us in Scripture, there's one thing that you should want and seek after and try to become and embrace and drink and eat and love and just jump all over more than anything else in the whole world, and that's wisdom. More than gold, more than, more than a relationship, more than prestige, more than pleasure. I mean, fill in the blank. There's nothing in life that will really, truly fulfill you, the ancient Hebrews said, more 
and gaining wisdom and to actually become a wise person. That's it. That's what everyone should be wanting for and longing for throughout the book of Proverbs. And see, Proverbs tells us that this is the most important thing. But I would suggest that also what it's saying is being wise is, is really made up of, of two different elements. This is what we've been talking about. Being shrewd. And then the other one we could just call... Being innocent, being pure, being upright. Now, do you ever recall seeing those two words together anywhere in Scripture? Shrewd and innocent. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus is doing like, uh, you know, if, if the Super Bowl is Matthew 28, where, you know, the Great Commission, where he goes, okay, guys, I'm not going to be with you anymore. Here's the way, here's what... These are your marching orders. Go out. I want you to go make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, blah, blah, all this stuff. He goes, that's like the Great Commission. He did a practice run in Matthew 10. And he said, I'm going to send you out in a smaller setting, and then you're going to come back, and we're going to regroup. We're going to talk. And in that setting, it's in that context that he said, I'm sending you out, that, that he said this as they went out. Matthew 10:16. Jesus said, I am sending you out like, like sheep among wolves. And he says, therefore, because of that, that reality of what you're going to be like going out, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Isn't that interesting? Now, if your biblical memory is working, you'll remember the first time this word was used, it was of Satan in the garden in Genesis. It said that he came as like a snake, and the snake was the most shrewd creature of all of them, which is kind of fascinating. Be as shrewd as this, but not evil. Be as innocent as the Holy Spirit, like a dove, in that way. So what exactly does shrewd mean? Let me, let me give you kind of a, 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 a compact definition as possible. If you have a pen and you want to write this down, um, it's like three, four words. Okay? Here's a definition for what shrewd means. It's the expert application of leverage. Being shrewd, it's the expert application of leverage. Now let's kind of tease it like, okay, what does that mean? How does that work exactly? Here's, here's what happens when a person is shrewd, and this is what Jesus tells us in the story about the shrewd manager or steward. First thing is a person gets a lay of the land. H- how do things work here? What's going on? What's everything that's in play? Right? What's the nature of this? If I'm talking to someone, if I'm working with a scenario, what, what are all the dynamics that are coming into play? Understanding how things work. And then leveraging that knowledge to apply the right force. Not too much, not too little, just the right amount of force. Apply it in the right place. Not over here, not over there, but just exactly pinpoint where it needs to be. And at the right time. If you're looking for those qualifications in the reflection questions, um, question number uh, five gives kind of those three qualifications of it. Here's the idea. Jesus, Jesus is shrewd. Think about this. Jesus is shrewd in all of his dealings with people. Think about those three categories that I just gave you. Um, how about force? 
Does he give the right force? Not enough help? Remember a time when Jesus is with his disciples and some people reject him. The Samaritans say, you can't stay here, which is you know, kind of going against the ancient custom of hospitality. And uh, Jesus says, okay, we'll leave. And, and his followers say, should we call down fire from heaven and burn him up? And he's like, too much force. A little too much. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> okay. He's shrewd. Um, how about place? Um, one unique thing that Jesus had the ability to do, anytime Jesus talked to someone, the woman at the well, after he talked to him for a while, he goes, it's relationships. That's your thing. Uh, go get your husband. After all this big, long theological conversation, oh, I don't have one. Yeah, you're right. You've had five, in fact, and the one you're with now, he's not your husband, is it? And she goes, whoa. And she realizes, you've touched the thing that I've been looking for my whole life, that I've been seeking for significance everywhere, and you put your finger on it. What is it about you? Because he put his finger, he's shrewd. He put his finger at just the right place. What about time? How often do we find Jesus saying things like, my time has not come? One time we're told that after this miraculous event and people are starting to see maybe this is, maybe this is the Messiah, the King, it says they were going to take him and make him king by force, it says. And he says, it's not my time. And he refused to go up to the festival with them. And it said he waited a little while and then he went. He's so shrewd that he knows exactly when to do it. He knows exactly the place to touch in people. And he knows exactly the right amount of force. Not too much or not too little. See, being shrewd doesn't mean being angry. It doesn't mean being rude. It doesn't mean being crass. It doesn't mean being over-assertive in some way or attacking. It means understanding how things work. And then leveraging that understanding to apply the right force to the right place at just the right time. There's this obscure verse in the Old Testament. Book of Chronicles, if you've ever read that. Uh, Book of Chronicles, it's, it's listing in this place just, these are all the men of Israel. And this, there's this group and there's this tribe. And it gives this obscure statement about the men of Issachar. And I love this statement because to me it's like, that's I think what Jesus was getting at. 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, The men of Issachar, this is the only statement about him, and then it goes on. It says, The men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Isn't that cool? The men of Israel understood the times. That's that idea of they, they understood. They stopped and they said, Let me assess the lay of the land. Let me figure out what's going on here. Who are all the parties? What's happening? And they knew what they should do. They were shrewd leaders, and they changed the nation of Israel. Because they were understanding and then willing to apply the right force, the right time, the right place, using leverage in the appropriate way. And Jesus uses all manner of tools for leverage, doesn't he? All of his relationships. He uses laughter sometimes. He uses generosity. He uses humor. He uses just straight bluntness with people. But he, he leverages everything to get to what he knows is the good situation, the good solution, or the good end. Shrewdness, you guys, as followers of Jesus, shrewdness is a daily necessity. You are of far too important an endeavor, being in this kingdom of God thing, to, to go about it in any sort of just half-hearted, oh yeah, thoughtless way. That's why Jesus says, you had better be pretty darn shrewd in how you go about this kingdom living thing. And everything that you do. Rick Lawrence writes in his book that's simply entitled Shrewd. 
He says, shrewdness is the reason why, listen to some of these things, shrewdness is the reason why some marriages are marked by deeper intimacy and joy. Shrewdness is the reason why some parents mold more mature, enjoyable, and savvy children. It's why some business continues to grow during hard times. Shrewdness is why some physicians are constantly better at getting their patients well. It's why some people leave behind them a wake of healing and restoration. Shrewdness is why some households in our neighborhood live better with less. Shrewdness is why some churches turn, well, we've always done it that way, on its ear. Shrewdness is why some missionaries are rescuing women caught in human trafficking. Shrewdness is why some commanders turn a battlefield dilemma into a victory. And shrewdness is why some people are closer and more continually close to Jesus in spirit and practice. See, I would suggest it's because most of us, and me included, have never thought about Jesus being the shrewdest man who has ever walked the face of the earth or spent a whole lot of time even paying attention to what the Bible says about shrewdness. It's just, it's simply off my radar as a follower of Christ. And that's exactly why Jesus told this parable. He said, I'm going to tell you a parable that's going to make you scratch your head. And you're going to wonder, why was, why was that in the Bible? He says, good, because you don't think enough about shrewdness. Our world does all the time. They do constantly, but we don't. See, to be shrewd is to apply the right force, the right place, and to achieve the right result. Now, our world does it, and it's called something different, really. It's called manipulation. You know why? Because they're shrewd for their own benefit. That's just manipulation. Manipulating people and events to serve you. I mean, that's what we see when we turn on, you know, the, the shows, the, you know, the miniseries with the politician. He's doing things. He's shrewd, but it's really just manipulation at the end of the day. He's getting his own way. Shrewdness, biblically speaking, is about following Christ's way. Leveraging beauty. Leveraging generosity. And even bluntness. To say, how can, how can I expand his kingdom thing? Not mine. How can I expand his kingdom? And Jesus tells a story of a guy who was put in charge of some account books. Even though he wasn't innocent, he was shrewd in how he handled the books. And because he knew he was going to get fired, he set himself up for when it was all done. He knew, he was gonna, he knew it was coming to an end. Verse 9 of the passage, we read this. Jesus says, I tell you, Use worldly wealth. Now, he, now you've got to think about this. He's still using the negative, selfish language of the story. Okay? And he's sort of saying, you know, as you're a steward, he's applying, he's, he's starting to turn the corner, but he's still using the selfish, manipulative language. And he says in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth. Okay? That's the accounting books that God has given you. Those are your relationships, that's your money, that's your time, that's your job. Whatever God has put into your accounting books. Use this wealth to gain friends for yourself. He's using the story. This is this idea of influencing those God has placed in your life. So that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. See, someday you're going to be fired. Not from your job, necessarily. You're going to be fired because this life will end. 
And Jesus is telling us the end of the story. He's saying, you're going to be fired someday from life. And God will say, I entrusted you with some accounting books. What was written in them? What was in there? How much did you have stewardship over? How shrewd were you with them? Were you shrewd as a a serpent and innocent as a dove? Or did you just kind of cook the books? Like, did you use them to benefit yourself? Were you like this, this guy who was shrewd but not innocent? Or were you wise? Did you couple shrewdness with innocence? What did... What did you do? Did you leverage all the things, the money, the positions, your friendship, your skill sets that you have, your role as a parent, as a grandparent? How about the education you have? How about the hurts that you have and the scars? Those are part of your accounting book, too. All the things that have damaged you and hurt you. Did you leverage those for my kingdom? Or did you turn them into somehow just being about yourself did you make an eternal impact? Because see, even, even this, this jerk in this parable, this creep in Jesus' parable, knew that he had to make the most before he was fired. And that he'd have to give an account of the books. Second Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed. That means your books looked at. For the deeds done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Would you pray with me? Father, it was out of shrewdness that that your son, Jesus, told parables, which sidestepped those natural defenses in our own lives. Lord, I pray that you would please show, show me, show each one of us this week how I can be innocently shrewd in my dealings with others in order to move those situations, not to the outcome I want, but to kingdom outcomes which reflect what you are doing and what you want to do in our world. God, would you, would you show me? There might be things in my accounting books that I don't even realize can be leveraged. Maybe it is the hurts. Maybe, maybe it's something that, that was extremely hurtful. But God, you can, you can leverage even that. You can help me to apply the right force to the right place at the right time in that person that I sit down and have coffee with this week or that phone conversation that I have or the email or maybe it's just someone I'm sitting next to that I don't necessarily know that well. God, would you show me how to leverage the things in the accounting books that are my life in a way, God, that can broaden up your kingdom, that can invite others in, that would be compelling. And Father, may we respond to Jesus' charge to move more shrewdly into our own lives. But may, may that movement, God, be anchored in innocence and purity of your Holy Spirit, God. And when we blow it, thank you for forgiving us. Help us to step right back into the flow of your Spirit, God. We're grateful. Thank you for this community. Thank you for the person on our right, on our left, in front of us and behind us. 
God, may we see them first as those that we shrewdly laugh with and are generous with and pointed with and give ourselves to because you've done that to us. And we pray this in the strongest name there is, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys, our prayer team is going to be up front. Um, if you'd like prayer, we'd love to do that with you. We're just going to hang out. We've got like five minutes till kids' uh, programs end. Um, go to the back, grab some snacks and um, coffee, and just hang out and be together. So thanks so much for being here tonight. We'll see you guys this weekend.